Welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast. Today we speak to Carolyn, Malcolm's mom. She's the most beautiful soul, and I honestly can't even try to capture what a special and life-affirming conversation we had. I'm afraid I'll ruin it by even trying to put words to it, so please just trust me. Come and listen to this conversation I had. She will break your heart open and transform you in ways that you can't imagine. I love Carolyn. I loved our conversation. Please stick around. My name is Sam Taylor. I'm the parent to a childhood cancer survivor and the host of the Deep Sea Podcast, where we come together to talk to parents, caregivers, friends, and professionals who have been affected by childhood cancer. Hearing your child has been diagnosed can feel a lot like being ripped from life on land to suddenly being submerged deep into the ocean. It's disorienting, it's scary, and sometimes it's really hard to breathe. This podcast is for all of us who have supported a child through their diagnosis. It's where we'll come together to share the skills and coping strategies that have made it a little easier for us to breathe down here. But it's also a place for us to connect, to feel heard, to find support, and to swim each other to shore. So let's dive deep. I have spent so much time trying to find a way to introduce you to Carolyn. Like I have gone through hundreds of different ways to put words to her and to her story. And honestly, I, I can't, but I think that's because there really aren't any. So I'm going to stick to facts and details because I can at least do that. Okay. So Carolyn is a mom from North Bay, Ontario. And she's had four beautiful babies, three girls and a boy with her partner, Dylan. When her second baby, Malcolm, was five months old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And in an instant, Carolyn and Dylan were airlifted to Chio, the children's hospital in Ottawa, where they spent almost six months during COVID. And we all know what the COVID restrictions looked like for admitted families, only one parent, no visitors, no outside world, nothing. Oh, and also Carolyn was pregnant with her third baby during Malcolm's treatment. So this is as far as I can go when it comes to basic details, because this is where Carolyn's story turns from something that I can use words for to something that doesn't have words. And that's because she's just too beautiful and she's too special. She's too out of this world to even try to pin down. You just have to listen to Carolyn for two seconds and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. She will pierce through your heart and fracture it into a billion pieces and then put it all back together again to be even stronger than before. I'm going to share another detail about this episode. Carolyn is a bereaved mom. Malcolm passed away just before his first birthday, almost four years ago. I'm sharing this because I know that hearing Carolyn's story will shake up your soul. It shook mine, but not in the way that you might think. Carolyn tells her and Malcolm's story 
with so much pride and astounding beauty. She is so open and so gracious with her sharing of Malcolm's life. And Carolyn doesn't owe any of us her story. She doesn't have to tell us one single word, and we would respect that. We would honor her, and we would love her and accept that losing a child gives you the right to do whatever you need and want to survive. You can chart your own course, and it's not up to us or to anyone else to stand in her way of doing that. But Carolyn wants to share. She wants us to know Malcolm. Like you'll hear her say, he's her favorite subject. She wants families who are bereaved or palliative to hear her words and to know that they are not alone. I just, I love her so much. I love that I got to know Malcolm and that his name was spoken and heard and known. I want this conversation to continue floating his name through all space and time so that he is remembered and he is celebrated and he is loved, which of course he is and will be for all time. So my friends, let's dive deep with Carolyn. It's just, it's so different because we never left the hospital. So we never experienced like the public of Malcolm having cancer. Right. We you never were there for six that. months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we never went out to a store with our son who had cancer. We never left hospital grounds. The only time we left was to go to our Airbnb and we didn't go anywhere. We never went to a grocery store with him. We never went to a restaurant with him. So I, n- I never experienced that. Like what do you the- think would have been different? Like, you know, you mean you never experienced like people's reaction to it or yeah. Yeah. I think people's reactions. And when you're in, in Chio and you, when you're in a hospital with sick kids, you know, everyone, it, nobody looks at your kid differently. So it wasn't yeah. like pe- nobody stared at him. Nobody, right. um, or there's no judgment or there. I don't know how to explain it. I, I never I totally get that, it. So I don't know what other parents experienced in that. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. I haven't even thought of that. You're right. Like yeah. there, the outside world is a whole part of your kid having cancer and the way that the world responds to a bald child, a child mm-hmm. in a wheelchair, a child with, you know, a feeding tube in their nose. Like yeah. there's so many different things that you don't realize you have to contend with and the yeah. stairs and the like. Oh, the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never had that. I'm glad. I'm glad that you were able to kind of cocoon at the, I mean, I'm glad's maybe the totally stupidest word, but the fact that you didn't need to have that extra scrutiny. Mm -hmm. It adds just another layer on top of what you're going through. You know, like you're going through it already and then it just adds like, I don't know, a whole different level on top of that what you have to deal with oh yeah you get really spicy i mm-hmm. i would oh god the mm. <laughs> sometimes if i was like walking behind ellie and she was walking a little bit ahead of me which was very rarely because she was rarely walking but yeah um, if she ever was ahead of me 
and I was a little behind her and I saw someone walking towards us and they were staring at her and I was like, as soon as they passed her, I'd be like, what the fuck are you staring at? Like, get, the fuck. Like, like, get your fu-. Like, oh my God. Yeah. I was insane. Yeah. Like, the only thing I really ever remember being like I think I traumatized someone was um they were at the they were at Chio and this was before COVID so they were allowed to be in the playroom and so I brought Malcolm in with the playroom and he had his IV pole and his NG tube and um this little girl was there and the mom's like oh like what are you guys here for and um like cancer you know (laughs) and her face just like went white and she just like took a moment she just kind of looked around and the reason why she was on the oncology floor is because her daughter had her tonsils removed, but she was in the overflow on the oncology floor and she just went white and she just looked around and you can tell she was just like, Oh my God. But I was just like, uh, cancer. Like, why are you here? Like, it was just, it was so like, that was the only time I ever experienced like someone, you know, like having a reaction, I think to my son having cancer that I was just like, what do you mean? Yeah. That's why we're all here, are we? Like, I, I had no idea that they had other patients on the oncology floor other than oncology patients. So when she said her tonsils, I was like, oh, well, that must be nice. Yeah. You get to go home tomorrow, you know? Well, so. it's like from a, it's like, it's like an alien coming from a different planet talking to you. Yeah, You're like, like I'm on like, planet cancer. Yeah. What, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And, you know, get out of here. Yeah. Leave. No. The only time I left um, was I was actually pregnant. So I had to go up to North Bay for prenatal care. Um, So I would say once every like eight months or sorry, eight weeks, I went up to North Bay. And what did it feel like to leave and do that? Uh, Well, the first time it was okay because um, it was weird leaving. Um, I think I was on the phone with... um, Dylan constantly the whole time I was there just to make yeah. sure like Malcolm was okay. Um, I it was it was strange. Like I remember going to um, a hockey game, an OHL game, and I felt like everyone was staring at me. Yeah. Like how dare you come to a hockey game when your son is in the hospital with cancer? And I don't think anyone even knew at that point. But I just remember I was like, everyone's staring at me. Everyone's judging me. I was, I remember I was in the bathroom and I was almost having a panic attack. And my mom's like, Carolyn, no, like, it's okay. The people who know, know you. The people who don't know, like, they don't know. You're okay. You're allowed to have fun. And I remember I, I felt so guilty going to that OHL game. And I remember everyone was just, I felt like everyone's staring at me. Like, how dare you have fun when your yeah. son has cancer? Um, but then after that, it was COVID. So I just kind of came, you know, did my appointments and then went back to Ottawa. I don't think, I mean, I find this so interesting that you were really immersed, like, because mm-hmm. you're right, even for families that are admitted for a long period of time, even for family and like, but add on top of him needing to be there indefinitely, add on top of that COVID out on top of that, you not being in your hometown. I mean, that place became your world. Yeah. And it, I think a lot of people, you know, like we love the nurses and the doctors that work there. But for us, 
I don't like it was so different. They were our family. They didn't yeah. a lot of our friends and family didn't know Malcolm. The nurses and all of the support staff knew Malcolm. Right. And you know, like I have a lot of friends or a lot of family that didn't get to meet Malcolm. But this, the staff that worked there, you know, like they saw him every single day. And just, and he was like the cutest, happiest, sweetest little thing yeah, in the world. Yeah, he so really was. Wanted yeah, to be with you. Okay, yeah. so let's back up a little um, mm-hmm. and talk about the start. Talk about how it started and kind of go from there. So he was five months old and it was um, December 2019. And it, his left eye looked like it was um, like protruding out of his face. And it was just slightly, but um, I, I could just tell that there was something going on with his left eye. Um, I went to a couple different, um, I went to an eye doctor and she said, you know, his eye's okay, but you know, I don't know what's going on behind his eye, like, but his eye's okay. And then, so I went to a nurse practitioner. Um, one nurse practitioner told me to squirt breast milk in his eye. And, um, so I went to a different nurse practitioner and she's like, you know what, take him to Chio. And, you know, to this day, I still love this nurse practitioner. Like, I'll take all my kids to her. I just love her because she goes, just take him to Chio and just, you know, do the drive if you can. And I said, it's just his eye. Maybe I'll just go to Emerge. So I just went to Emerge and they did blood work, nothing there. And so I went to Emerge, um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And finally on Friday, I said, he's not waking up. He's lethargic. He's not eating. He's just, he's just sleeping. So, um, they admitted us into the hospital and still like we no no reasons why um he was he was not eating and he was lethargic so um one of the doctors really pushed to get tests because in north bay we only do mris for peds on thursdays um so this was a friday plus this is also was this not also like christmas eve or the day before like 23rd yeah so we were december 20th. december 20th we got admitted so then one of the doctors, you know, brought in extra staff. The nurses uh, were amazing because you need, you know, your own nurse for the peds patient. So um, I can't remember the nurse's name, but she came in on her day off just to be there for us. And we went to the MRI. And um, so we did the MRI on the December 23rd, 2019. And, um, you know, the doc- I-, I knew right away, like sitting in the MRI machine, I could see the doctors, but it was, it was tinted. So I couldn't see their faces. I could just see like their silhouettes. And so there was a doctor and a nurse. And then, and then I saw the, or the radio, the radiologist, um, tech, and then someone else came into the room and then someone else came into the room and I saw them pick up the phone. Oh, and no. then I'm like, they found it. They found what I, I knew it. I was like, there's something behind his eye. I kept saying we that. We all read the faces of the text too, right? I couldn't see their faces. Oh, I could oh just God. see their silhouettes. Okay. And I could see another body come into the, I could just see another head, another head. And then I saw the phone and like the the cord that went from the, you know, the base to the, the headset. And I'm like, they found something. And so they came in to put dye um, in him so that they can search more. And, and so... I was like, can I leave? Because Dylan was on the other side of those people. Dylan is Malcolm's dad and my partner. And 
So I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to take a little pause and look at the MRI machine. I don't know how to read an MRI machine. So I'm like standing there. I'm like, oh, like they found something. I don't know what I was looking at. But anyways, so we go in. I'm standing with him and I'm I'm crying. Like they found something. They found something. And so they came out like, honestly, I don't think it was that long. I think it was maybe like a minute or two later. And uh, the doctor said, uh, we found little bone masses on his on his skull. So we're just going to do a quick CT and make sure there's nothing else in his body. Um, I think it's benign. We should be good. Um, so we're just going to do a quick CT. So um, so Dylan went into the CT machine with him. And I was in the hallway. And I remember just sitting there being like, sweet. It's benign. Like, this is awesome. We got the golden ticket. We're good. We'll go to Sick Kids or Chio for a couple weeks. We're good. And, um, yeah, and then they, Malcolm was done his CT. They brought us up to the room and the doctor came in and she said, it's cancer. And I'm like, no, you said, no, you said it's benign. So you said benign. That's what I'm holding on to. And, and so I just kept asking them like, so we're just going to what cut the masses out. We're good. And she, and I remember like, she's staring at me. Like (laughs) I was just the stupidest person she's ever met. And Dylan looks at me and he's like, it's cancer. Malcolm has cancer. And uh, yeah, so we tried to uh, tried to get a bed at Chio. Um, and finally on Christmas Day, we got a bed at Chio and they, uh, they orange air flew us to, uh, to Ottawa on Christmas Day. And you talk about when you arrived uh, at night, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. I mean, first of all, before they even transferred to Chio, I I so get that disbelief. You heard the word mm-hmm. benign. You got yeah. comfortable with the word benign. You like locked into mm-hmm. that word. You're like, no, no, this is yeah. what's happening. And you probably, like you said, fine, we'll go to the hospital. We'll get it removed it'll be, and, and then home. Yeah. Like I already played out all the scenarios in my head on what we were going to do. And none of that included cancer and and chemo. Like that's, that was not what we were going to do. And so when she came in and was using these heavy words that were not part of your vision, not part of your interpretation. Yeah. I was like, "Mm, no, I don't believe what you're saying. Like I was just so held on to the word benign and I don't, I didn't know a lot about cancer. Still to this day, I don't, I would not consider myself an expert. I don't know a lot about cancer. I'm just an expert on my son. And I just, I, I just, all I knew was benign was a good thing. That's all I knew. Yeah. And we like benign. So, so um, as you're being airlifted, you kind of go into a, mm-hmm. uh, you, you go into like a, your action. It's just action. You're not thinking, you're not feeling you're just moving and a lot of families actually say that there's a tiny like there's an odd comfort in that like in the sense that you just now are on a track and they've put you on a track and now you're just going on that track so yeah it's like a car wash when you're just going through it and you're just things are happening you just and you're just moving forward and it, it was weird it was the strangest feeling and I and I know other oncology families feel that as well um 
but yeah, we left at, I think we left at 10 o'clock at night and we arrived in Ottawa at 11 PM and it was Christmas day. So, um, the emerge at Chio was packed. And I remember looking into the emerge and like Malcolm was sick, but like he didn't look sick from the outside. A lot of these kiddos were visibly ill. And I was just like, I don't belong here. Like, like this is not like we shouldn't be here. And I remember going to the Chio elevators and, and on the elevator doors, there's, um, sick kids. You know, there's, um, a child with cancer, um, a child in a wheelchair, just different ailments that these children have. And I remember being like, Oh no, like we, we shouldn't be here. It's just a benign bone tumor. Like, we should save this spot for other people. It hadn't sunk in yet, even by then oh, no. that it was cancer. No, no. So I I really want to talk about the next couple days here because mm-hmm. they're so relatable. And you arriving at this hospital that you, like you said, mm-hmm. you do not belong at. Why are we here? Yeah. This is all wrong. You are in, and I felt like we were causing a scene because we had the orange paramedics. Right. Malcolm is in a car seat in the stretcher. We have the Ottawa paramedics, and because we didn't know where we were going, and my parents actually met us at the ambulance bay, so my parents are with me. Um, two orange paramedics, two Ottawa paramedics, and then we had an escort because we don't know where we're going. So as we're walking through, everyone, how I felt again, was staring at us. I'm like, guys, it's not a big deal. Like, this is just a little dramatic. We're fine. Like, that's all I'm thinking is like, okay, like everyone's just staring at us. Like, can we just like get to the room and yeah, it was. And get this sorted. A lot of, I think everyone's, everyone's sort of coping strategies are so different, but this one, I think that you experienced is very, very common, which is denial. Like, Mm -hmm. you know and, and disbelief, which, um, in a way helps because like I said, it puts you in that car wash. It puts you on that track and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll just go. I honestly don't remember what they were doing. Cause it was 11 o'clock at night. I was so tired. And, um, so the nurses came in and they have to transfer their equipment from the orange paramedics to their equipment. And, um, they're asking me questions. Like when did he eat last? I don't know. I don't even know what day it is. I don't even, and and I remember them asking me questions. And I'm just sitting there like, I don't know, ask the paramedics. Like, I'm not here right now. I'm currently unavailable. And um, and it was Christmas day and this, this one doctor comes in and she had stuffed animals in her pony, her pigtails. She had pigtails with stuffed animals in them and wore the, had this like light up sweater. And I remember looking at her and being like, like, love you like you're so comforting right now like I'm an adult and I'm like thank you for being here but she's asking me questions like you know how often does he eat and I really felt like I didn't know him because for the past week and a half he wasn't he he wasn't acting normal he was he was that's why we got you know diagnosed so quickly is because of his symptoms that he was having so you know I'm like I don't know and she's like well you know, this, how often does he, um, wet a diaper? I don't know. I didn't know anything. And I felt really, really sad. Cause she goes, well, how often does he, 
I don't know. <laughs> like I just didn't know anything. And yeah, I think, you know, you did know, but the yeah. shock was so great. And the chaos was so intense that I don't know how you're supposed to even answer the question. What's your name? Yeah. Like I, mm -hmm. beats me. You are thrown into this other world that you've never even, you didn't know existed. Never mind, never been yeah. to. You didn't know this world existed. And the thing with the cancer world is you don't get any time to like unpack your bags. Like you're there, you're yeah. in it. Mm -hmm. And it's really sink or swim. It really is sink or swim. So, yeah. you know, you talk about that doctor who came in and told you to pick him up, right? Who told you to mm -hmm. touch him. Yeah. So that was after chemo. Probably about like, we're probably day four into it. And I hadn't touched Malcolm because like since before, like since North Bay, I hadn't picked him up. I hadn't touched him. Um, yeah, he was, he looked really sick. His face was all bloated. He had a Broviac. Um, he had bandages all over him. He was red and I don't, it wasn't from blood. It was from something else. Um, probably the iodine that they scrub. Uh, he just looked really ill. And um, a nurse had come in and I, I think I met her on one of the first days that I was there and she came in and said, sit down and I'm going to pass Malcolm to you and you're going to hold him. You're his mom. He wants you right now. So I did. And it was, I loved it. Honestly, it was, it was, it was changing because then I wasn't afraid of him. I wasn't afraid I was going to hurt him. Um, and he wasn't just laying in the bed staring at me like, you know, he needed his mom and I was just staring at him like, so. Do you, you think know. that's when you landed? You know what I mean? Like, do you think that's when mm -hmm. you were like, okay, I'm his mom, I'm his most fierce protector. It's now him and I, and we're going to do this. But it took you, obviously, a minute mm -hmm. to get there. and. I'm so grateful that that nurse did that. I mean, she's probably seen it a million times that mm -hmm. parents get, yeah. it's scary to see your child not look like your child, not smell like your child, not feel mm -hmm. like your child. And it's a terrifying feeling. Yeah. And so I love her for doing that because yeah, she mm -hmm. knew, she knew what you both needed, right? She knew yeah. he needed it obviously, but she knew you needed it yeah. too. And I mean, shout out to the nurses. They are angels mm -hmm. who just yeah. walk among us and their perspective on things is, is unbelievable. And, and they save us in more ways than just our, you know, physically. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that tell me also about the conversation when they did tell you about the next six months, like they did tell you about the treatment plan. I remember there being three doctors with and a social worker and a nurse. Um, and that's when it kind of clued in that every time they need to tell you something serious, they're going to bring in a social worker. Um, and they, they just kept telling us like, I don't, nobody ever looked me dead in the face and said, Malcolm's cancer is very aggressive. Not one per. I just thought this was normal. Like, all kids have to stay in the hospital for, you know, five rounds of chemo and um, that, you know, he's not going to be able to, to go outside and he's not going to be able to do things. Like I thought that that was an, 
normal thing. I'm only realizing, I think, in the past two years how aggressive his cancer was. Um, but yeah, they just said that he's going to have five rounds of chemo and he has to stay in the hospital the whole time. And each round's about 30, 30 days. And yeah. And the nurse, the doctor, sorry, the doctor in front of me was pregnant and she was sitting in the chair in front of me. And the two doctors to my right were, were men. And, um, I think they were, they were all talking to me, but I was just looking at the the pregnant doctor and I was like, what would, what are you, what would you do? Yeah. You know, they're saying, oh, should we, do you want to do a Broviac or do you want to do a port? I'm like, what would you do? Like looking right at her. And she said, well, we usually do a Broviac. I'm like, I'll do that. Yeah. And then, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of options. Like it was just, this is what we're doing. But anytime she said something, I'm like, what would you do? What are you, what are you recommending? And not because that they were men and she was a woman, but she was at my level. Like she was sitting in front of me in a chair and she was pregnant and she was a mom. And, and I don't, I didn't know all the terminology. So I, I'm like, I don't know what you guys are saying, but she's saying, yes. And like, they were even saying like leukemia. I'm like, I don't know what that is. But, and then she's, you know, then she would say it's, he has cancer in his, his bone marrow. Okay. And then I was like, you know, they were saying, oh, his neutrophils. I'm like, what is that? Like, I don't know what any of these words are, but she was just like, she's like short and form, short formed it for me. I remember when, when we were in that similar conversation of like the diagnosis conversation, they did the same thing. And one of the oncologists said, she, she could tell that I was like, same as you, like mm -hmm. you are officially speaking a different language. How on earth are you expecting yeah. us to know what you're saying, especially add on top of this, the shock and denial and right. And she looked at me mm -hmm. and she said, I promise you, you will know everything. Mm -hmm. You will know all of these words. This will become your second language in five minutes. I promise you. So right now yeah. you have no idea what we're saying, but you will. And I remember when it happened, like I remember that time when I the first time that I felt not only did I know the language, but that I could probably administer the chemo myself. Like, you know, when you get to that point where yeah. you're like, oh no, this is, this mm -hmm. is my jam. Like I know what's up and it, they were right. And it's again, not a place that you ever want to be. And it's not stuff that you, ever, those mm -hmm. are words you ever want to know. And it, those are not procedures you ever want to be a part of, but it's amazing how fast you learn them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's all we live right now. Or at the time, that's all we live. It was like your, Malcolm's cancer. It was your initiation into this new place. And yours just really strikes me as so profound because you literally were transported to a new mm -hmm. city. You were in COVID. So you were in lockdown and mm -hmm. you were admitted for six months to a hospital. Yeah where you didn't have your friends, your family, your partner, you couldn't have visitors. There couldn't be anyone else, but just you and Malcolm. And what were your days like? I mean, what, what did you wake up in the morning, just like any random Tuesday mm -hmm. in the middle of, let's say February or March, what did your day yeah. look like? Um, so I would wake up, have breakfast at the Ronald McDonald house and then walk to Chio because like a stone throw away. I would walk to Chio, go up to his room. Um, he'd be waking up 
and then I would, you know, change his diaper and see what he needed. He would have his morning meds and we would just hang out. Like he was such an easygoing kid, but um, his, honestly, the one thing we would do continuously throughout the day, except for if he was napping, was we would walk up and down the hallways mm-hmm. in that little push car. Like, oh my, I, I think I put like miles and miles on every single day, just walking in that little U-shaped hallway. Yeah, we would play toys all the time, like just that one-on-one time. And, and there was a lot of mom guilt while I was going through um, what we were going through with Malcolm that I had another daughter at home that I hadn't seen in months. But I kept telling myself, like, I will make up for it mm-hmm. because Malcolm, like, I, Malcolm needs me right now and my time is with Malcolm. And I'm I'm so glad that I, I the guilt didn't, you know, override because I I was able to spend that time with Malcolm and I've made up for it with my other daughter. So we kind of skipped over at towards the mm-hmm. end of treatment. You were yeah. ready you were getting ready to go. You were yeah. getting ready to go yep. back to North Bay. Yeah, we had uh we had a whole discharge plan. We had everything set up in North Bay. We have a nurse come in and change his NG. And his um, Brobiac dressing, um, we, you know, had ordered the IV pole. We had ordered everything to come back to North Bay. And um, they were doing a final um, bone marrow um, where they do the draw just to make sure everything's good for us to leave. And and what are you, what are you, sorry, before, mm-hmm. before you got those results, what are you thinking? What's in your gut? Oh, we're going what are you thinking is going to like happen? Like I was packing up the room. We're leaving. We're going home. We have one more week to go. And we already told the Airbnb where we're going to leave. Um, yeah, we were planning to go home. Um, I had talked to my insurance. We had everything planned out. Um, all we had to do was order it the day we were leaving and it would end up at our house. And, um, and yep. your medical team felt mm-hmm. the same. They were like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we love you. We're gonna miss you. Love you, bye. And uh, we had planned to go to Sudbury for dressing change. Like it was just we had everything set up, and uh, so we're doing the final bone marrow. And um, the chief oncologist comes in, and the social worker comes in, and I was like, "What's going on, guys?" And they said that they found zero point zero one percent blast in his um, in his bone marrow, and they said, you know, usually when a kiddo relapses, it's a big relapse, but Malcolm has a very, very, very minor relapse. So um, I know maybe we'll talk to the transplant team in Toronto and, and go from there. And so Dylan and I were just thinking, you know, we're just going to do another round of chemo, go to transplant in, auto, in Toronto. And so then we're kind of working it out like, okay, we'll probably have the baby by then. So because we're going to be three months in Toronto. And then so, so we were honestly, we were planning it out. Like I'm going to come to North Bay to have the baby. Dylan's going to be in Toronto with Malcolm and we're just going to switch roles kind of thing. And the next morning we did a CT and that's when we found a, uh, a Mandarin size, uh, chloroma, which is a buildup of, um, his cancer cells in the dura, which is the lining between the brain and the skull. And so it was like the size of a small clementine. And, um, yeah, so, I don't know. I, yeah. So that mm-hmm. derailed mm-hmm. the plans and what, 
happened next? What did they what did they predict for you next? So we had already planned on starting the chemo on Sunday or on the Monday um, to get ready for transplant. So um, we were going to still continue to start the chemo on Monday to do um, to do transplant. But the transplant team said that they needed the tumor to shrink a certain percentage before they would do transplant um that they were comfortable doing it if he still had the tumor but it had to be down a certain percent so that whole week we did chemo and um, we did daily lumbar punctures and um i don't know i i don't know if everyone knows this but a lumbar puncture is where they insert chemo directly into um your spine so we were doing that every for five days or yeah five days and then on the friday they had done an mri and his tumor had shrunk. I think it was either five or fifteen percent. Like it had shrunk a little bit, so that was a good good sign. And um, and then so that was the Friday, and then the Sunday was Father's Day. It was uh, June twenty first. Was Father's Day, and um, my parents came down to see us. That was their first time seeing Malcolm in you know five months, and so they came down to see him. And we had a really good Father's Day. We took him out um, onto hospital property because he was neutropenic so we couldn't take him back to the um, airbnb um so we were just walking around the hospital grounds had a really really nice father's day and um uh so during that that week um so the monday tuesday wednesday um he was just really fussy um you know he was saying his tongue like you could he, he couldn't talk he was a baby but you could tell his tummy was hurting every time he took a, a, a had a bowel movement like he just was straining and he was really uncomfortable. So we did a bunch of tests, did like, you know, the, um, the, um, nuclear medicine test. We did ultrasounds on his tummy and we did a bunch of different things. And on the Friday, um, the 26th, um, I had noticed his, his breathing had changed a little bit. Hello friends. Carolyn is going to start sharing about Malcolm's passing now. While it's one of the most loving and beautiful moments I've ever witnessed in another human, I understand that, of course, it will bring up something different for everyone. Please take a moment and give yourself the space to feel this out. See if now is a safe and supportive time for these feelings to move around inside of you. Take a break. Continue or meet us again later. And now back to Carolyn. And, uh, and it was in the morning and our nurse for the day, she, you know, she'd been our nurse for the past six months and, and we loved her and we were really close with her and she came in and, and I, and I looked at her, I said, is Malcolm going to die? And she was like, Oh, oh my God. Like, no, Carolyn, like, He's okay. He's just breathing. Maybe he's getting sick. He's just breathing a little different. It's okay. He's going to be okay. And, um, and even Dylan was like, what the fuck? Like, why would you ask that? And it was just, it's just from? something yeah. was off about his breathing. And I, and I was like, and I don't know why I said it. And even to this day, I'm like, I don't, I couldn't, I don't know why it just came out. And, um, so they did his morning blood work. And, uh, and at noon, um, you know, the doctor, um, the nurse, the social worker, there's about four different people walked into the room 
and this was like the most out of body experience I've ever experienced in my life. I still to this day don't see what I am seeing now. Like I saw myself like I was standing in the corner of the room and I was watching them talk to me. And uh so they said that they had found uh cancer in his blood system, which it had never been in his blood before. So this was technically another relapse and that Malcolm was going to die. And I remember just being like, okay, so like, what about transplant? Like, there was, told me he was going to die. There was not a life without him. There was, there was no way he was going to die. Um, but yeah, when they told us that, I just remember I called my mom and I said, you know, Malcolm's going to die. You need to get get here now because they were my whole family is in North Bay. Um, Dylan's family is in BC and his mom just happened to be visiting us that week um, because she was here to help us transition to Toronto for the transplant. So she was here to help us move to Toronto. And uh, so, she, yeah, she just happened to be in Ottawa with us. Um, so right away, things started moving. And, uh, you know, they, they send in the team from Roger Nielsen House, and they're incredible there. Um, palliative care team, um, the Roger Nielsen House, uh, they do um, palliative care. They do respite care. Um, when they, they first came in, when, um, when we found Malcolm's tumor, um, the second time and, uh, in the June 20, 20th and, um, or June 15th or whatever day that was. And, um, immediately when they came into our room, I said, I don't want to talk to you guys. I don't want anything to do with you. As soon as I heard palliative care team, I said, um, like, fuck off. Like, I don't want you guys. We're good. And, um, yeah. and throughout that week, I was reading more into what they did and they left a pamphlet. They were very polite. They left a pamphlet that said, you know, even if you just want to spend the weekend here with your daughter, like we're here for you guys. So, so when they had come in, when we found out Malcolm was going to die, I was not afraid of them as, as much. And, um, you know, they, they offered to move him cause he was at the Chio hospital. They offered to move him into the Roger Nielsen house, um, that our whole family could stay, you know, my parents, my siblings, everyone could come and stay. Um, but for us, it just, it, I didn't want to move. Malcolm was in the same room he was in for months. Um, we knew everyone on that floor. They were our family. Moving to the Roger Nielsen house, in my mind, we didn't have enough time. I'm not taking five hours out of my day or out of my weekend or whatever to move to a different area because that's five hours less that I have with Malcolm is what I'm thinking in my mind and they were very supportive of our decision they were very polite they were amazing they were incredible we still got Roger Nielsen house care at in Chio even though we weren't at the Roger Nielsen house they still came in and cared for us they still did everything that they would have done if we were at the Roger Nielsen house, um, you know, they, over the next 
um, 24 hours or 48 hours, you know, they were saying, um, I kept asking, how long do we have with him? And, you know, they said weeks or, you know, a, a week at least, like we got lots of time with him. Um, so um, my family came and we were doing arts and crafts with Malcolm. Um, we, um, mm-hmm. Can I ask you how, okay, so if it was sort of your coping mechanism to mm-hmm. reject like the same time, mm-hmm. like the same, the way you were the whole time, like, no, this is benign. Yeah. No, we don't need this. No, we don't need palliative care. Like you, you were, you know, your coping mechanism was to say nope. And then it took you mm-hmm. a minute to yeah. arrive at the reality of what was going on. When they mm-hmm. told you he was going to die and you were outside of your body, you were standing in the corner watching this all go on. How long did it take for you to integrate? Like how long did you take before you landed in the reality of what was going on or did you ever land in the reality of what was going on so that you could function over the next few days um as soon as I asked them how long I had with him I thought because when you hear like oh someone has cancer they have three months to live you so I'm thinking in my like oh she's gonna say something like three months when she said weeks I was like, I can't spend what little time I have left with him not present with him. Um, so I feel like it was like as soon as they left the room, you know, as soon as they left the room, um, we had done small things. Like he was in a crib the whole time. So we had done things like um, we got the oversized bed brought into our room so that someone was always laying with Malcolm. Um, every time they said, we have child life, do you want child life to come in? Yes, we want child life to come in. We want everything. We want to experience everything with him. While we can. And child life was awesome. Like, um, she, she came in and she said, we're going to do molds of his hand and feet. And it, she didn't ask us anything. And I'm not saying she didn't ask us anything, because, like not consent. Like it was, she just took over. And I really appreciated it because if she, I'm, I'm not a very um, aggressive person. They did hands and feet molds and things like that. So she said, we're going to do hand and feet molds. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. And, you know, so pretty much all of Friday and Saturday um, for half the day on Saturday. We did arts and crafts with him. Like we painted his feet and put them on um, different picture frames. And I have hands and and feet molds. Like I think I have like five different ones. I have one of Kaylin's hands, my oldest daughter, and his hands in like next to each other. And um, yeah, and then they, they said, would you like a photographer to come in and take um some photos and I said yes like any memory I can get I will do and uh it was beautiful you know I uh I think when people lose their children and if it's an accident 
or something that they don't plan on. Not that we were planning on losing Malcolm, but very happened suddenly. We had a very beautiful experience. And, you know, they shut off the monitor so that we didn't have to um, hear his monitors beeping even before he passed. Um, every It was very dark in our room. It was very quiet. It was very quiet outside our room. Um, it was just so beautiful that weekend. Um, you know, the staff, it was like unlimited people could come in. I had my grandparents come. My siblings came. I have three siblings. Um, their, their families came, my parents came, my mother-in-law came. We had, at one point, I think everyone, um, who was in Ottawa of our family was in the room with us. And it was just, it was so beautiful. It was so nice. And, um, yeah, I just laid in bed for those two, two days and just, you know, like trying to take pictures in my, in my mind of, all his little features and um it was a very very beautiful way of passing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it sounds beautiful and it it sounds so enveloped in love so much love that was not only around you but streaming at you from Mm -hmm. every direction did you feel that like did you feel support or did you feel like it was you and Malcolm and you had sort of gone off to create your own little bubble as he was transitioning I feel like it was just Malcolm and I yeah um my daughter they ended up letting my daughter stay in the hospital Friday night and Saturday night um, he was progressing very quickly in his passing. So um, we did only get 48 hours with him um, from when they told us he was going to pass. He passed within 48 hours. Uh, my daughter was at the hospital the whole time. Um, she had her own room. The nurses had set her up in her own room. Um, she, I, I don't even know what was going on with her, but I, everyone was taking care of her. Everyone was taking turns. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a little coffee and tea cart in front of our room. Um, I it, There was lots going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about that I'm glad I didn't know about. Nobody asked me permission yeah. for anything, and I didn't care about anything in that moment. I was just with Malcolm. Um, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it, it was beautiful. After he passed, even, like, you know, the nurse came in, and she goes, do you want to bath him? And because he had a bro react, he hadn't had a bath since December 2019 so like an actual sit in the tub bath so you know I I was able to bath my baby one more time and um I got I got to get him dressed and change his diaper and just be his mom and uh Mm -hmm. we had probably about six hours after he passed of just being with him and um you know a lot of nurses came in on their day off um one of the doctors came in on her day off um it was, it was just, it was so beautiful. Everyone came to pay their respects. Um, it was not, it was traumatizing, but it wasn't a traumatic experience, I think, than if he, if he passed suddenly and we had to do 
just try and resuscitate him. Like it was very beautiful. It was. I'll never forget it, and I don't ever want to forget those those moments. And um, as my my sisters had said that the the worst thing they've ever heard in their life was after Malcolm passed. My screams, but I don't remember that at all. I just was so with him that I don't I don't know who was in the room with us when he passed. I don't know the timeline of when people came in and when they left. I was just so with Malcolm the whole time. I love you. <laughs> I love I do. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank and you. For, and for framing it so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So when, when oncology families are leaving the floor of Four North, especially ones that are long-term like we were, it's um, they hit the gong bell on their way out that they're done treatment. And um, the one thing I didn't want is for Malcolm to be put into a box and taken out of the hospital. I said to them, I brought him into this hospital and I'm going to take him out. And uh, he passed on a Sunday, and uh, the nurses put him in a bassinet. He wasn't covered. He was just laying there like he was sleeping. He had quilts and blankets, and we walked him right out the doors, and I hit that gong bell on our way out. It was beautiful. It was, it was just, yeah, it was nice. I mean, as nice as it can be losing a child and I I don't I it was definitely not an out of body experience in that moment because there was I wasn't gonna miss anything in that. No, yeah, I don't I think in those moments you would actually become quite primal in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, like every one of your senses is heightened and you're so alive. You're so aware. Mm -hmm. You're you're so there and it sounds like that's how you responded mm -hmm. and I don't think when you when you have an experience so heightened that you could ever forget a minute a mm -hmm. moment and I hope that I hope that that's the case I hope that you do have I mean it sounds like you're retelling of it is is crystal clear mm -hmm. Dylan his experience compared to your experience that day how would you say his reaction was and his awareness of the of the passing was I think as so I I didn't want to be holding Malcolm when Malcolm passed but we were, so I was on one side of Malcolm and Dylan was on the other. And I think Dylan was very much in his own bubble with Malcolm. Um, you know, because for me, it was just Malcolm and I. But Dylan was there. So um, we haven't talked about it too much. Um, I'm a very, we're both grieving our son. And we're both grieving separately and together. 
Um, so I'm a very out loud griever. I'm a very, you know, I'll, I'll cry and, and scream and, but I'll talk about it. And I want everyone to know, um, about Malcolm and Dylan's a very quiet person. He's very internalized and, um, so for him, I think it was between Dylan or Malcolm and Dylan and, um, yeah and you know when we were bathing Malcolm like I bath Malcolm and Dylan bath Malcolm and um I I think it was for both of us it was very one-on-one with all three of us being there it was um Mm -hmm. yeah it was beautiful and that we both mutually respect each other and it wasn't like okay this is my son I'm gonna hold him when he passes it was like we're both gonna lay with him and we're both gonna hold him and we're both going to bath him and we're both going to walk him out. And, um, it was a very not selfish time, I think, in my, in my parenting life that I was able to share those moments with him, even though I really didn't want to. It didn't feel like, it didn't, it didn't feel hard to share those experiences with Dylan. Did you feel love? Like, did you feel love and the way I'm describing, the way I mean by love is, you know, in those moments when the three of you were together, the moments when you were bathing him, the moments before, during, and after he passed, did you feel love like you'd never, ever felt before? Was it love on a whole other plane? You know, like... Mm -hmm. I just imagine everything being so concentrated, you know, every emotion being so full. Yeah. The, the pain was at a 10. The, the uh, grief was at a 10, but was also, was the love also at a 10? And was the beauty also at a 10? I guess yeah. is what I'm asking. Like, yeah. did you feel it at its full expression? Mm-hmm every everything yeah. and it's how often or how much can you say or how can you say i love you to make it last a lifetime so telling malcolm i love you never meant it so much in my life so when i said it the last time to him when he was alive how can you say it enough to make it last a lifetime? It's, but I did it. And there's no doubt in my mind that Malcolm didn't feel that love from every single person. And like you said, it was at 10. Like I've never loved him as much as that day. I've never meant it as much as that day. And I have no doubt that he felt it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds sacred. You know, that's the word that comes to mind when I think about the three of you on the bed, when I think about you and Malcolm as your bubble and Dylan and Malcolm, mm-hmm. and then also the like outer layers as well. It all feels sacred. Do you talk to families who are bereaved? Like, I mean, have you 
have you connected with other families that are bereaved? Um, yeah, I did. Um, I did a couple grief counseling um, groups. Um, it's it's unique to hear all their different experiences on how um, I haven't really talked in depth to other parents who have lost their child in probably the similar way I lost Malcolm. Um, if I did, it was just very surface. Um, I think it's hard to talk about that to another person who's not ready to talk about it or who isn't as open as I am talking about it. Um, but I've talked to other parents who have lost their children in other um, forms. Are there similarities between your experiences in a way yeah 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 um the heartbreak is there the you know the the denial like when, when they first told us he was gonna die it was like like no um even after malcolm passed and i'm laying with him i to me there was no way i was gonna there was a life without malcolm like, he was going to grow up. Even after he passed, I still was like, he's going to grow up. And even now, you know, I think to myself, like, he'd be four years old. He would have started school in September. Um, you know, I still think of him as a four-year-old now. Um, and I, I think a lot of other parents who have lost a child, we we can relate to that. Like even after they had passed, you couldn't have, like, there's no way they weren't going to grow up. And because in our mind, we still have that child. They are still alive within us. And they are growing up as we are. You know, it's interesting talking about how you felt like everyone was looking at you at that hockey game when Malcolm was mm -hmm. back at the hospital receiving treatment thinking, oh, how's this mom out yeah. when her son is getting cancer treatment. What does it feel like walking through the world now specifically as someone who's lost a child and seeing how people respond to you and people treat you and what does it feel like what 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 works for you and what doesn't work for you, you know? Like what makes you feel seen? What makes you feel icky? what are the right ways that people have come to you since Malcolm's passing? The right ways that make you feel good. Yeah. So we had um, an advantage of having COVID um, like the lockdowns. So after Malcolm passed, after his funeral, um, I just went in hiding for like two years. And I think in the past year, I've just recently started, um, making appearances out in the real world. Um, the best thing is when people mention him. Because mm -hmm. when someone, like you know that they know about Malcolm and they don't acknowledge it or they don't acknowledge Malcolm or acknowledge anything that has to do with my son, it makes it so much worse. It just talk about him talk about him bring him up um ask yeah ask anything anything you could say you know 
what color was how old would Malcolm? Yeah, what color was that? How old would Malcolm be now? Um, Anything. I love that you said that because I know so many people are afraid to ask because their response is, "Well, I don't want her to think about it." It's like, well. I'm never not I'll thinking about, think it. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's never. Or I don't a want to remind you. Right. I don't want to remind you, and there's nothing you can say that would make me cry. I'm even if I'm about to cry, or if I'm going to cry in our conversation, it's it's not the other person. It's me, and um, yeah, it's it's not the other person. And if you talk about our loved ones, we love it. Yeah. It's like, you know, Malcolm's my favorite subject. Okay, good. As soon as anyone says anything about Malcolm, I'm like, here, let me, I got, <laughs> uh, let me tell you everything I know about him because he's my favorite subject, just like everyone else's kids, right? Like, um, a hard part is always when people ask me, because I have three girls, are you going to try for a boy? Oh, three girls must be really difficult on you. Are you going to have a boy? Um, just recently, I I usually clap back. I usually say something very, um, very sarcastic, very rude, very like just to shut them up. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, I've actually um, haven't been doing that so much, and I don't know if that's what part of me is is doing that. If that's my healed part of me. If that's my like, you know, I just don't feel like getting into it. Don't feel like making them feel uncomfortable. Um, or you don't feel like feeling that anger inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just trying you. to, yeah. I'm choosing to just, yeah. Keep the peace inside of you. When you look at the date and try to remember the day that it was with him, or what does it feel like now when you think about him and talk about him? Um, I think about what we were doing back then, but I also think about now and it, it, it's comforting thinking like, you know, I had almost a whole year with him and so I just try and remember the positive, like, oh, like, you know, what we, what we would be doing or where we'd be now and just really think about the positives of it and and even if it wasn't a good day, it was a day I had with him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even if it was a rough day, you know, I think we're on four years, four years ago. Um, oh, this is what we did four years ago, and it was a really bad day. That was a day I had with him, and it was it was a beautiful day. Even if it was a bad day, it was a day I had with him. Is... Mm-hmm probably I think that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard and I really mean that thank you Carolyn thank you so much for sharing Malcolm with us he has one incredible mom and I just loved getting to know you so much I hope you come back. I hope we can keep talking and sharing and connecting with families together. By telling us about Malcolm and sharing his life with us, you are giving other families the permission to do the same. Maybe families who have been trying to find a way to talk about their pain 
now have a guide, a shiny lighthouse that they can swim towards. I wanted to share here too that I found a lot of support during my daughter's treatment from some really great people and organizations who are specifically focused on childhood cancer and trauma and bereavement. Wellspring is a cancer support community that offers a parents of children with cancer support group. It's free and it's virtual and I'll link to it in the podcast episode notes. I found so much support with this group, just being able to sit with other families who are at other stages of diagnosis and treatment, but we're all in the same boat hearing each other's stories and having a chance just to release and to say the things that we can't always say to the other people in our lives. We also found the support of an incredible social worker. Uh, She has a private practice. Her name is Elizabeth Doherty. I'll also link to her website in the show notes. Elizabeth is incredible. She supported me and she supported my daughter during and after treatment. She's a palliative social worker with decades of experience in the oncology world. She offers support following a diagnosis, during remission, at the end of life, and into bereavement. I cannot say enough about Elizabeth. If you are looking for someone who can help walk you through a particularly dark spot, uh, I think she might be an excellent support. I'll also have a spot on the Deep Sea Podcast Instagram account for us to share our thoughts and feelings about this episode. If you have questions or comments, you can always direct message me there as well. I'll just remind you that I'm not a professional. I'm not trained. I'm not a social worker or a therapist. I'm a parent who wants to listen, to connect, and to heal through supporting and making space for other parents like us who have carried their child through a cancer diagnosis. I started this podcast knowing that some of our conversations would take us to some places pretty deep inside that we might not want a lot of light to get to, and that's okay. If that happens, though, if episodes like this one bring up feelings that you feel you need support with, please reach out to the people in your community. Please reach out to the people I just mentioned. Find your support network. And above all, please know that you are not alone. I'd also love to give a huge thanks to my dear friend Ian Blackwood for his beautiful, moving song, Carry Me to Water. Also for his professional advice and support and friendship, along with his wife and co-producer, Aaron. I love them both so much. Big thanks also to Andrew Lewin at Cuttlefish Media for his production and editing and his boatloads of patience. Thank you to my dear friend Kate Mitzi for the logo design. And the biggest thanks to my little girl for teaching me that the deeper you dive into the darkness of the ocean, the more buried treasure you will find. Until next time, that's where you'll find me.
Cause you'll always say it.